morning, and welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Jason Kuznicki. I am a research fellow here, and I would like to uh, welcome you all to a book forum on Robin Hansen's The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life When Robots Rule the Earth. Uh, as you probably are already aware, Robin Hansen is an associate professor of economics at George Mason University and a research associate at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. He has a doctorate in social science from the California Institute of Technology and master's degrees in physics and philosophy from the University of Chicago and nine years experience as a research programmer at Lockheed and at NASA. He is the author of the popular blog Overcoming Bias and he has uh, over 60 academic publications in a really astonishing array of different journals. And to give some idea of his uh, wide range of interests uh, to the uninformed, I'm going to just name some of the journals. Uh, Algorithmica, Applied Optics, Economics Letters, Econometrica, Foundations of Physics, Information Systems Frontiers, the Journal of Evolution and Technology, Journal of Law, Economics and Policy, Journal of Political Philosophy, Public Choice, Social Epistemology, and Theory and Decision. So these are, these are journals in all sorts of different fields, uh, many, many different interests that he has, clearly, and uh, this book in fact, manages to unite a great many of them. It's, it's the sort of big, expansive Robin Hansen book that uh, his fans have been uh, waiting for for quite some time, and uh, we are very pleased to have him here to speak about it today. Thanks. All right. This is a big picture from some point of view. This is the US economy over the entire uh, last few years, every time it went up or down, it was big news. But we're going to look at a much bigger picture. This is the world economy over the entire last half century or so. Now the y-axis is the logarithm, and you can see it's roughly a line, which means we've seen roughly exponential growth over the last half century. That is the big news of our modern era, exponential growth. World economy doubles roughly every 15 years. If you go back farther, however, it's not a line. There was the Industrial Revolution. Before that, it looks like no growth, and then we figured out how to have growth. But if you go back even farther, you see it was growth. The farming economy doubled roughly every 1,000 years for 7,000 years. And then uh, before that, it looks like no growth before the farming revolution. But if you go back even farther, it's even slower growth, doubling roughly every quarter million years. And you can go back even farther and find that brains were growing even slower. And before that, genomes were growing even slower. We come back to just look at human history and we try to fit it. It turns out it fits pretty well as a sequence of exponential modes. Uh, exponential growth separated by short transitions, each of which takes less than a doubling time. Now I'm going to try to fit this all on one graph. And now on the y-axis, I'm going to show the growth rate. And in the x-axis, now I have a logarithm of time until a time in the near future. And now you can see there are a sequence of growth modes. During each mode, there's roughly steady growth. And then there's sudden transitions. So the farming revolution was a sudden transition from foraging uh, to farming, and then a sudden transition from farming to industry. And if this pattern were to continue with the statistics of, this, of the previous transitions, i.e., 
how many doublings they've lasted and how big a factor the doubling time increased, then what would happen is sometime roughly in the next century or so, the growth rate would, within a five-year period, increase to doubling every month or so, and then that would last for a year or two, and something else would happen after that. What could possibly cause such a thing? One of the common speculations about the next really big thing that might change everything is robots as smart as people. One way to do that is what we've been doing for 70 years. We've been slowly writing better software. I used to do that for nine years. It's going slow. There's been a recent burst of some progress, but still overall, if we look at the past rates of progress, it would take two to four centuries till we reached human level abilities in the typical field. Some people think that's too slow because we're about to discover some great theory of intelligence that will change everything. I'm not sure that exists. But I'm going to focus on a third scenario. And this is based on the analogy of porting software. Today, if you have a piece of old software on an old computer and you want it to run on a new computer, there's two things you can do. One, you can stare at the old software, try to figure out how it works, and then write new software on the new computer that acts like the old. Or another, you can write an emulator on the new computer that makes the new computer look like the old one. And then you just move the software over without knowing how it works. So that's the idea here, to emulate human brain software. Inside each of your head is software that's running. It's very smart, but it's on particular kind of hardware. So to emulate it, we're going to need a lot of cheap, fast computers. We're going to need to take particular human brains and scan them in very fine spatial and chemical detail to see exactly what's where. And then we're going to need to have models of how each of the cells in your brain works, each kind of cell works, in terms of taking input signals, changing internal state, and changing output signals. And if we have good enough models for all the types of cells, and we have a good enough scan for where all the cells are and what they're connected to, then by definition, we should have a good enough model of the whole overall thing in terms of input-output, so we could hook it up to hands, eyes, ears, mouths, and then you could talk to it, it would talk back, you could ask it to do things, and it might do things. That is the concept of an emulation. And how long it will take depends on how deep we have to go into the structure of the brain. The deeper we have to go into finer detail, the longer it will take before computers are cheap enough to make them replace people. I've been around people in futurism and science fiction speculating about this for 40 years. People love to go immediately to talk about, is it even possible? If you made one, would it be conscious or is it just a machine? If you made one of me, is it me or somebody else? When will it happen? Which technology will make it work? I'm going to ignore all of those questions. I think they're overdone. Lots of other people talk about them. I decided to write a book about the question everybody was neglecting, in my opinion. What would actually happen? What would be the consequences of such a thing? And so this book is out now. If you look at Amazon uh, book keywords, you'll find 20% of the books have the keyword history and about 1% of the keyword future. Interestingly, if you look at historical fiction and science fiction, it's about the same, but vastly more history than futurism. If you ask people why, they say, obviously, it's because we can know things about the past and we can't know anything about the future. And I've written this book in part to show that wrong. I'm just going to straightforwardly apply theory. You can think of futurism in three kinds. You can think there's futurism that projects trends forwards, there's futurism that takes some new technology that might show up, like self-driving cars or Bitcoin, and tries to envision what it might be like. 
Then there's futurism that takes a disrupting technology and asks, what would be the consequence? And that's the third kind of futurism that many people just don't think is possible, that I'm trying to show is possible by taking a particular disrupting technology and showing its consequences. This is a map of, ac of academia connected by co-citation. These are the fields that cite each other are connected by lines. These are all the fields that I'm drawing on for this book. I've had an unusual uh, history, as Jason mentioned, and I'm going to draw on all of those things. So that'll let me take a very simple strategy of picking the low-hanging fruit. I'm just going to go through area by area and take the most straightforward, simplest, usually qualitative results and just apply them to this scenario. I'm not using fancy math, et cetera. But I am going to do what theorists everywhere do, which is we always look for our keys under the lamppost. What that means is we make simplifying assumptions as necessary so that we can get concrete results. And I'll be telling you about my simplifying assumptions. Another thing that I'll do is I'll assume efficiency and apply that. We use that all the time when we predict the past. In order to understand what, say, our, the ancient farming world used to look like, we understand what makes for a more efficient farm, where to plop, plant crops, when to water them, when to harvest them, things like that. I'm going to be applying those same sort of concepts to the future. So this is my last slide telling you how I'm going to do what I'm doing, and then I'll tell you my results. But I want to be clear how I do this. First, I'm not trying to be creative or original other than by telling you, uh, by just applying standard consensus results from many academic fields. I'm not trying to make up new stuff so much. Secondly, it's not my job to make you like this world. My job is to tell you what it's likely to be, whether you like it or I like it, just what the path of least resistance would most likely go to. Not that much happens for the humans, so I'm going to focus on the robots because a lot happens for them. I'm not going to tell you about the entire future of the universe for the next trillion years. My ambition is only to tell you about the next era that's as different from ours as ours is for the farming or foraging eras that came before us. I'm not going to tell you about all the disruptive transition that gets us from here to there. I'm going to try to focus on what it's like when people are used to it. It's a new era. I'm going to use standard supply and demand analysis, as economists do, i.e., assume a lot of competition, not so much regulation. This isn't to say there shouldn't be regulation necessarily, but I'm going to take the standard simplifying assumption saying there's not much. Also, the emulations are as simple as we can get. They're black boxes. You can turn them on, turn them off, erase them, copy them, run them fast, run them slow, and that's about it. You can't take one guy's music, another guy's sport, combine them together, make something different. You just get to run them or not. All right, that's my assumptions. That's the way I'm doing things. And from here on, I'm just going to start telling you a few of the things I found out. The book has far, far more. First of all, I can tell you some things that are true regardless of what kind of robots we're talking about. Robots are, in principle, immortal. They're represented as computer files, so you can archive them and save them forever. Now, your houses and cars are also immortal in the sense you can keep repairing them forever, but you don't always do so. So robots aren't necessarily immortal. They're just possibly immortal. They can travel electronically because they're represented as computer files, so that's easy to get around. We love nature, but we also fear that if we kill nature, we will die. Emulations know that if they kill nature, they will not die. They're made in factories out of stuff duck up in mines, so their commitment to saving nature is less. They also make lots of copies of robots. It's easy to make copies of them, no matter what kind they are, and that has enormous implications. For example, it has implications for wages. Today, we have a lot of demand for human workers because they're very valuable. A limited supply makes wages high. 
we have a lot of robots to substitute for people of whatever form. If they're cheap, that drives down wages. And even if demand goes ways up, wages stay low. It's a subsistence wage scenario for the robots. But this affects growth. Today in our economy, to grow, we need labor and capital. We could just make a lot more machines. That's one way to grow. But that doesn't work very well. We have diminishing returns to all those extra machines. They're not so useful. If we could make lots more people, that would be a way to grow. But we don't double our number of people every 15 years like we're doubling the economy. So that's not how we're growing. We're growing today by making better machines. Uh, and that's the primary way we have been growing. But if we can make substitutes for humans in factories and make them as fast as we can make machines, because we can make machines in factories actually really fast, then the economy could grow much faster than it does today. Standard economic theory says it's not crazy for the economy to double every month or so, just as that previous trend line might have predicted. And if it takes a year to get to Mars, and the economy doubles every month, you're just not going to bother. So uh, slow space travel is just going to be set aside for a while until the economy would slow down again. Emulation have more varieties of lives than you do. So your life starts and ends. Here's an emulation, however, who every day splits off what I call spurs. These are short-term copies that only last for a few hours. Then they're erased or retire. And they are much more productive. The ordinary mainline M, he works for 8 to 12 hours, and then he needs the rest of the day to rest up and sleep. This, if you have a fresh copy at the beginning of the workday, it can do work, and then uh, it's all work. So it's much more uh, cost effective. So it would be very tempting for M's often to make those sorts of M's. This is a more opportunistic M. He chooses to make more copies when there is more demand for one version or another. Doesn't know which way things are going to go. This is an M designer. They might conceive of an overall system. Then, then break into copies that, that focus on subsystems and so on until they design a large, complicated thing. M's can therefore have much larger, more coherent designs than we can today because they can split into copies that follow the same design concept. This is an emulation plumber. This plumber uh, remembers 20 years of only ever working two hours a day. Every day when they're ready to work, 1,000 copies are made. All those copies work two hours, and only one of them goes on to the next day. Objectively, this plumber is working 99 plus percent of the time. Subjectively, they remember a life of leisure. Those two don't have to be the same. We see a robust feature for complicated systems that adapt uh, to environments, which is as they adapt to one environment, they become harder to readapt to new environments. This creates a limited lifespan of adaptability. In software, it's called software rot. It's why eventually you have to erase your software and start over from scratch. This means that emulations have a limited career length before they're too inflexible to compete with younger emulations in the workplace. And so emulations basically will have to retire. This again is your life, starting and then ending. This might be you if at the beginning of a party you took a drug, which meant that you won't remember that party the next day or ever after. Now, at the end of that party, you could say to yourself, I'm a new creature who has brought into existence at the beginning of this party, and I will, I'm about to die. This is terrible. How did I ever let myself in for this? Or you might think, I will continue on. I just won't remember this party. An emulation that splits off a spur who lasts for a short time and then ends can think about it in the same way. They have the same two choices. They can either say, I'm a new creature who's about to die. This is terrible, and fight and scream. Or they can say, I am the same person 
I just in the, later on won't remember this part of my life. So I predict this is how emulations will see it because there's a lot of competitive advantages from seeing it this way. I don't say that's the correct way to see it. I just think human uh, value plasticity is plenty sufficient to encompass this sort of way of thing seeing things just like you might see the party. Today, uh, it's hard to meet celebrities. For M's, it's easy to meet celebrities because they can just split off, split off copies to meet anybody they want. The hard thing for a celebrity in the emulation world is to get them to remember meeting you. Meeting them is easy, but we can use this ability to help emulations trust their leaders and others around them by sharing secret celebrities. So today, if your leader says, we must invade Iraq, you might say to the leader, uh, but why? And they might say, state secret, sorry, can't tell you, you'll have to trust me. You might not trust them. Uh, in the emulation world, what they can do is a copy of the leader and a copy of you can go together inside a sealed safe. Inside the safe, they can explain all their secret reasons. And then all that comes out of the safe is one bit. Was I persuaded? And you can hear from a copy of yourself, I was persuaded they have good enough reasons. And then you don't know what those reasons are, but you know that you were persuaded. Uh, in this world, humans are eclipsed. Now, humans start out owning most of it, uh, so they can be pretty rich. But still, emulations will concentrate in a small number of dense cities, and humans will be elsewhere. Humans will have to retire. That is, they can't work for money anymore. But again, collectively, they own pretty much all this new economy. So collectively, they're very rich. If the economy doubles every month, their investments double every month. So overall, humans are doing very well. Whether any one human does very well depends on how well those humans insure and share. Uh, the safe prediction is in history. We've seen a lot of variety in that sort of thing. So I predict a lot of variety in the future, too. Sometimes they'll share well, and sometimes they or insure well, and sometimes they won't. Emulations all started out as being an original human. So psychologically, they're all near the range of human variation. They are recognizably human in their personalities. But they're not typically human. The emulation world will focus on the few most productive ones of them and make lots of copies of them. So if we have a distribution, say, of hardworking and smart, you'll see that the emulations are the extreme tail of both hardworking and smart here. That's where the emulations are drawn from, the very best. Probably most emulations are copies of just a few hundred most productive humans. So that makes emulations as elite and, and capable compared to the typical human as today are Olympic gold medalists, billionaires, heads of state, Nobel Prize winners, things like that. That is the typical emulation. They are that capable. We know a lot of things today about what correlates with people being more productive. So I just predict that emulations are more like the features that we know of today that are more productive. They're smart, conscientious, et cetera. They're going to be near a peak age of productivity. They'll probably be married, married even religious, because these are things that correlate with productivity today. Most jobs in an advanced economy are office jobs. So emulations are mostly doing office jobs. There's no point in giving them a little physical desk. They might as well just work in a virtual reality since they're in a computer already. So it's really cheap to give them beautiful, spectacular virtual realities. Uh, that's much cheaper than uh, just running their brain in the first place. So these are typical environments for an emulation. They're beautiful, they're luxurious. Emulations never need to feel pain or sickness, disease. Their bodies are always beautiful. But they're working most of the time. These are, in fact, offices. Um, now, I, many people, just when they think about the future, they focus on physical technologies. And physical technology should be better in the future, but social technology should also get better. And so I discuss in the book how a variety of institutions should improve and change. And I also discuss 
various issues of governance and law. Uh, Non-democratic rulers have some new advantages in this world relative to our world today. On the other hand, democracy has some problems. One M1 vote doesn't really work. There's a new unit of organization, which is the clan, all the copies of the same original person who have more reason to be allied with each other than even families do today. So that becomes a unit of law and finance and politics. Uh, whether emulations are slaves is an open question because that's always been an open question in every society. I'll just say there's less reason to have slaves in this society compared to many societies because since they're at subsistence level, it costs about the same to feed a free slave, to pay for a free slave as it does to feed it, a free M as it does to uh, feed a slave M. So there's less point to having slaves. Uh, and mine theft is probably something they're really uh, very anxious about. They probably, because if you steal an M's mine, you could torture it, you could get secrets, you could have that copy, make copies of it, compete with the original. Those are all pretty terrible things. Uh, I also discussed some potential new institutions that economists have discussed, uh, combinatorial auctions for uh, replacing a city zoning and utility allocation, decision markets, uh, which is uh, something I've been working on, and even uh, more freedom of contract or a scope for recontracting around law. Those are some of the uh, potential new institutional innovations. Probably one of the most disruptive transitions that ever happened to humans was the transition from foraging to farming. Foragers were pretty much in equilibrium with their world. Their human nature fit the world they lived in. Farming became possible but required a lot of attitude and behavior changes. So the farming world cranked up social pressures like conformity and religion uh, and other sorts of, of fear threats to get people to act like farmers. And so. Uh, you know, for 7,000 years, people had a very different set of attitudes and styles. In the last 200 years or so, we've seen a reversion back to more forager styles uh, as we've gotten rich, and plausibly it's because as we get rich, the pressures that made us into farmers uh, no longer feel as compelling because we feel safer because we're rich. <laughs> Many people are, are proud of that tradition and hope it continues, but I do predict that with the emulation uh, world, they would move back more to a farmer uh, style mentality because uh, their world does require a lot of new behaviors that are not natural to humans and they are poor again. At least the emulations are living at subsistence level. Um, I can tell you some things about software or uh, our lives uh, ordinarily have uh, three stages. Uh, we train, then we work, then we retire. Emulations have the same three stages, but they save on the costs of everything but the worst stage. So you can just have one copy or a few copies get trained and make many copies of them who work. And then when they retire, they can retire slower. So for emulations, it turns out that over a wide range, you can run twi twice as fast, but only if you pay twice as much. So if you when you retire, you go much slower, you cost a lot less. So what happens when you retire? Suddenly the world around you speeds up a lot and suddenly you become much more concerned about the stability of the emulation civilization, you have a common cause with those humans who also are stuck being slow and care about the stability of the emulation civilization. So I think I'm running low on time, so I will just skip to a summary. But I have other things I can talk to you about uh, if you are interested. So summary statistics, sometime roughly in the next century, I can't tell you well, within a five-year period, uh, we'll have a new era, which may only last a year or two, and in that new era, we'll have as much growth as happened in the previous industry era, farming era, or forage era, where the economy doubles roughly every month or so, 
The typical emulation will be roughly a thousand times human speed, so to them this error will last for millennia. Uh, and uh, their speeds will range over an enormous uh, thing. Some of them will be a million times faster than us, others a billion times slower. Uh, most of them will come from a few hundred clans, uh, the few hundred best humans. They will cram into uh, very big, dense cities. So many of you might have said, uh, you couldn't imagine living in a small town because there's nothing to do there. You like living in a big city. The emulation cities are much bigger than yours. They will feel that way about your cities. There's just nothing to do there. Uh, so finally, pluses and minuses. Again, they need have no pain, hunger, grit, disease. Their bodies are beautiful. They really are less afraid of death. Um, they have a vast population who finds its life worth living, huge intricate cities, larger scale economies to, to support better stories, music, every, all that sort of thing. Uh, they are extremely able in terms of their uh, average abilities, but they are living near subsistence wages, as have most humans and animals through all history. They do work long hours. They often split off short-term copies at end. There is more wealth inequality, and there are more class inequality, especially by speeds. They are in larger, more bureaucratic firms. They may have less nature. They will be less interested in going into space, less democracy, perhaps more religion and ritual. This is my best guess description of the age of M, which, again, I remind you, it is not my job to make you like. My job to tell you as faithfully as I can what it would seem to be like, whether you like it or not. If you don't like it, maybe you could try to change it. Go right ahead. Uh, just don't overestimate how, how much you could change about an entire new era after yours. So thank you very much. Uh, we have, obviously, uh, a lot to talk about. Um, first, though, I would like to uh, invite up to speak uh, Ronald Bailey, our second speaker, who's going to be giving a, uh, a commentary in response. Uh, Ronald Bailey, as, as many of you are aware, is the award-winning science correspondent for Reason Magazine, where he writes a weekly column about science and technology. He is the author of the book, The End of Doom, Environmental Renewal in the 21st Century, and the book, Liberation Biology, The Moral and Scientific Case for the Biotech Revolution. Uh, his work has been featured in the Best American Science and Nature Writing Anthology. Uh, he has been shortlisted by the editors of Nature Biotechnology as one of the personalities who have made the most significant contributions to biotechnology in the last 10 years. His writing has appeared at Forbes, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Commentary, the Public Interest, Smithsonian, National Review, and many, many other publications. Uh, he's a member of the Society of Environmental Journalists and the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities, and it is my privilege to welcome him up here to speak right now. Well, I'm delighted to be here. When Jason called me up, it was it was great pleasure uh, to come to a Cato event and so forth. And um, so which one does this? Is it, there we go. And so I was thanking Jason. I would be thrilled to discuss the uh, at Cato the critically acclaimed new musical Dear Evan Hansen, uh, the truly touching story of a funny and lifting story of a teen loner who helps family deal with loss of their son by suicide. And then Jason cleared up the matter. No. So instead, our topic today will be Dear uh, Robin Hansen and his new book, The Age of M, Work, Love, Life, When Robots Rule the Earth. Uh, Jason said that Robin had recommended me as the commentator uh, as someone who 
could be insightful. Well, maybe, we'll find out. In any case, I am thrilled to be here talking about the coming robot apotheosis. Um, Robin, as you may have already discerned from his talk this, uh, this morning, is one of the most original and fertile minds thinking about the implications of exponential technological progress. Before going on to the age of M, let's briefly look at two other areas uh, in which Robin has made a breakthrough intellectual contributions. I do this because I want to praise him and because I found these fascinating anyway. But for example, he was very much involved with the creation and prediction markets. Um, more than a decade ago, uh, Robin was denounced by several US senators for helping DARPA to establish what they characterized as a terror futures prediction market. The idea was to create a market in the future of the Middle East and would have allowed trading futures contracts based on possible political developments in the Middle Eastern countries. Given events from then till now, that might have been somewhat useful. Uh, Ron Wyden at the time, Senator Ron Wyden declared, quote, the idea of a federal betting parlor on atrocities and terrorism is ridiculous and it's grotesque. Senator Brian Dorgan chimed in calling it useless, offensive, and unbelievably stupid. A day later, the Pentagon canceled the contract uh, to our great loss. And now you're working on prediction markets and other areas, and I, I suggest you look at his work in that regard. Another area that he's worked on is he's taken a whack at the Fermi paradox, uh, which may be slightly explained by some of the work that he does here in, the, in uh, the Age of M. Back in the 1950s, physicist Enrico Fermi noted that the galaxy must have billions of planets on which advanced life could have developed, yet when we peer out to the stars, we see nothing. It seems dead. We get no signals. We see no evidence of the existence of advanced civilizations. So Fermi asks, so where are they? Robin suggested that there may be a set of processes that prevent or cause advanced civilizations to go extinct before they can colonize the galaxy. He called that set of processes the great filter. The question for us is, is the great filter behind us or ahead of us? I don't know. We might get to that. In any case, it's quite obvious, having just listened to Robin talk about his new book and, and some of the things I've said, he has a remarkable cast of mind. To get a sense of how remarkable, consider these statements taken from his personal website. I have a passion, a sacred quest to understand everything and to save the world. I also have a rather critical style, of which I'm desperately afraid. Uh, and I have little patience for those thinking, whose thinking is sloppy, small, or devoid of abstraction. In the face of that, my job this morning is to comment briefly on this fascinating new book and give Robin and you, the audience, an opportunity to discuss and flesh out further insights from the age of M. So, as you said, at the virtual world, M, M cities. Now, first of all, there'll be the physical M cities, but this is perhaps what they might look like on the inside if you were an M wandering around in them. As he says in the book, the cost to compute such spectacular realities will be much lower uh, than, than actually computing uh, an M mind. And so the standards of today, quote, widely consumed M music, architecture, decoration, scenery, texture, touch, product design, story, plot, dialogue, are all of a very high quality. Also, M's living in virtual reality need never experience hunger, disease, intense pain, nor will ever see, hear, feel, or taste grime or anything ugly and disgusting. Worse yet, vacations may be so alluring that they'll have to be made less alluring for the still working people, so they'll go back out to go back to work. That sounds practically wonderful. Uh, what's not to like? But then what he's talking about is the M economy. Remember, it's going to be doubling every week, every month. 
uh, once it gets off the ground. And to some extent or other, I'm wondering what it is that is doubling in the M economy. Uh, what kinds of things will be going on? Since the virtual reality is cheap to compute, you could do anything you want in it. Um, what, what is actually going on? What is it they need? What do they want? Clearly, they need more computational hardware they get, uh, that, uh, that they would like to run at faster speeds. And this requires access to sufficient energy, cooling, and connectivity. But what else? Uh, as we've noted, M's will live luxurious, in luxurious cities, wear fabulous clothing, listen to amazing music. But since virtual reality is so cheap and pleasant, clean, safe, and non-boring, uh, creating these virtual goods and services, like the crude ones here illustrated from Farmville, uh, will constitute a relatively small part of the M economy. What is being doubled? And I'm, I hope you'll be able to answer that to me. I think you will. Um, then he goes on to M aging. And it basically says that as M's get older, their minds become more fragile. Of course, they have uh, perfect computational powers, but they get, uh, they, they get old, and they have to retire. And uh, Robin argues that humans like me might be mocked for their squeamishness regarding M death. Well, I say mock on. I am a bit squeamish and a bit puzzled, and let's explore this a little bit. Since M's are uploaded brains of actual human beings, Robin argues their motivations and goals, at least for a while, will in large part remain recognizably human. Robin's intellectual strategy, as we've heard, is to apply the insights from social science, anthropology, sociology, economics, psychology, and so forth, to the world of M's. Lots of human activities aimed at avoiding thirst, hunger, disease, and pain, and these have been totally extirpated from the M world, as we've heard. However, M's will still be motivated by curiosity, competition, sex, and friendship. As Robin has told us, the M world is, now, is nevertheless now a Malthusian world in which M's live at subsistence levels. This evidently comes about in the same way that earlier Malthusian eras did. There's a constant pressure to increase the number of M's to the level for which resources are available to support them. My first criticism. This seems like an old-fashioned Darwinian fitness maximization in which the motivation of living creatures, all living creatures, is to turn food into more offspring. More food means more offspring, or more broadly, more resources equals more progeny. But would emulated human beings living in such a world actually behave that way? Would they be motivated to relentlessly create more, ever more copies of themselves? As we know, the total fertility rate actually falls in highly competitive rich societies composed of current humans. Why would this dynamic be absent from the vastly richer M world? Um, now, so why do they age? We've heard his explanation for that already. And in his chapter on farewells, Robin considers how M's might end up. Well, why must they end at all? Uh, again, because they age and they must retire. They can go to the slow lane, literally running their brain where at very slow rates indefinitely, while others, as he delicately puts it, are ended. Uh, that is, deleted or erased. These are spurs, copies, what have you. Uh, in the M world, uh, Robin foresees billions of copies of, uh, and, spur, and spurs will be made. In fact, he thinks most of the work, as we've seen, will be done by short-lived spurs that end once their tasks are completed. Each copy or spur will be assigned a discrete task, given a resource budget, and once the task is got done, the budget is run out, they are erased. Robin says, when life is cheap, death can be cheap as well. 
To, today, erasing the last copy of some valuable software might be an enormous loss, while erasing typical copies costs very little. Similarly, erasing all copies of a trained M might be a great loss, but deleting one copy made, by a few, made a few hours ago could usually be seen as a rather small loss. My question is, seen by whom as a small loss? Remember, these M's, these copied M's, if, as I understand it, are fully emulated human brains. They have human motivations and so forth. Human beings, one of the things that we do strive to do is to survive, to avoid dying. Um, to kind of illustrate that point, I don't know if anyone else has seen it, but the movie Blade Runner, this is uh, uh, Roy Batty, who is a replicant, who is a superhuman replicant, in fact, who's come to Earth, who's seeking to figure out how to, uh, to live longer. Uh, replicants only can live for four years, and then they die. And the motivation is, is to, to be on planet Earth and figure out, go to the people who had created him and figure out how he might live longer. This is his final speech as he is dying. He's just saved a human being, the person who was trying to kill him, actually, the Blade Runner. And he says, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack on ships on, on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched the sea beams glitter in the dark near Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time like tears in rain time to die. And Robin equates this to, well, it's forgetting a party that you took a drug to forget. I've been known to do that sometimes. We know what the drug is. But I don't feel like I have, I'm a new replicant. I feel like I'm the same person I was before I forgot the party. I think that individuals' M's will continue to do that as well. Uh, Robin does, to his credit, observe in passing that short-lived copies and spurs, quote, might suffer high levels of stress anticipating the imminent prospect of their own death. Well, being full simulation of human brains, I suspect the answer to that speculation is not just yes, but hell yes. Human beings are highly motivated to avoid dying, and I'm, so f I'm not persuaded, so far persuaded, that the change uh, that will change for epileptic human brains in the M world. Uh, consider, if you will, the Gilgamesh saga as well. Another quest that human beings have been on forever is the hope for immortality. And Gilgamesh Saga is the oldest, uh, if you will, myth that we have come down to us. It's almost 4,000 years old uh, uh, in, in Sumeria. And Gilgamesh is a half-human, well, a third, a third god, which is hard to figure out. But anyway, uh, who, whose friend Enkidu has died. And Gilgamesh goes around the world trying to figure out the secret of immortality and to figure out how to resurrect his friend Enkidu. And he fails at this job. But this is clearly the thing that was written down, has come down to us as the thing that human beings, when they first wrote things down, were very concerned about, to live forever. Um, uh, Robin speculates that life will be chief among the M's, at least as long as they emulate the hopes and dreams and motivations of human beings. I doubt it. Life will not be cheap. They want to live. So one of the things that you'll be able to do, as you already pointed out, is you, this is second life. If you want to play in Second Life, you could have this body. Just pay some money for it, and you could have the skin tone you want, the eye shape you want, the musculature you want, and you could be an avatar. This will be exactly what M's can do. They will be beautiful people uh, forever. So the question is, let's turn back to M aging. The reason M's have to end by either retiring or deleted is because they age. Um, emulation on hardware can be indefinitely maintained, repaired and upgraded, and that is almost the definition of possible immortality. And that was noted, in fact, robots could possibly be, be immortal. 
Uh, so instead of a prospect of 80 years of biological life in which we decay, an emulation could perhaps look forward to thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of years of existence. Life for each individual M in, in, in such a situation is decidedly not cheap. They would want to stay alive. But what about this mental aging? Is, it, uh, is software rot a, possi a, a possibility? Well, an analogy, and of course, like all analogies, it may or may not work, but in the context of anti-aging research, theoretical biogerontologist Aubrey de Grey has suggested that humanity could at some time in the not too distant future achieve what he calls longevity escape velocity. That is, re rejuvenation technologies will extend healthy life expectancy faster than the aging process could erode it. Thus, your projected day of reckoning moves further away uh, from you rather than closing in on you. In the age of M, Robin suggests that M's could develop what he calls mind tweaks to extend the duration of M mental flexibility. M's will be highly motivated, I would argue, to seek out such interventions, mind tweaks again, that could stave off creeping mental fragility. Thus, they might, might be able to achieve a kind of intellectual escape uh, uh, velocity, an intellectual escape velocity. They might be able to overcome the limit that, that Robin foresees. I'm wait to hear why that's a stupid idea. <laughs> In any case, some other aspects of the age of M. Remember again, you don't have to like it, right? It, 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 he's just telling you how it is. One of the things that happens is, is again, is that M's have to die. And I don't know if anyone's seen this particular movie. It's called Logan's Run from 1976. And in this particular idea is a Malthusian world, a world a dystopian in which every human being has a jewel in their hands. And as it counts down, and at age 30, they have to participate in the carousel ritual, which is this ritual here. And the idea of the carousel ritual is, is that you strive upward. And if you can just reach the light, quote, if you are strong, you win renewal. Um, and as we can see here, um, Robin has come up with the notion that teams might be copies, copies of teams. And they would be striving against one another, and the ones that lose will be eliminated, or retired, or erased. And only the winners go on. Again, the rule is, if you are strong, you will win renewal. Um, so the losing teams are ended, and the winning teams win renewal and get to compete another day. Then he was describing the, the clans that have come out. After all, the clans will be based on individual human beings. and. Uh, and it'll be intense competition in the world that he's outlining for you. And just like each of us, these individual human beings who are now M's, uh, will have different strengths and weaknesses and so forth. And uh, and, and and so each of the founder, each of the clan, the founders of clans, each will be founders of clans that will number possibly billions of copies. And competition will further hone their skills differentially. Some will become rich and powerful; others will not. In a certain way, this reminds me, if you will, of Aldous, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World cast, where you had your alpha, beta, gamma, uh, delta, and epsilon. Uh, but those were centrally designed. But still, basically, clans may evolve into castes, as it were. Another thing to look at, ultimately, and we'll be concluding, is our other paths. I mean, he's out. Robin has outlined very uh, brilliantly one possible path to the future. But there are others, and there are other people who are out there thinking also about what is going on with technological uh, 
if you will, uh, exponential technological progress. And one is the Kurzweil option, or possibly a gentle way to slide into the age of M. Uh, his idea in, the, uh, how, uh, in his book, How to Create a Mind, uh, futurist Ray Kurzweil argues that brains are built of pattern recognition modules and suggests it would be possible to design artificial intelligence in much the same way. As, as he says, the next step, of course, will be to expand the neocortex itself with a non-biological equivalent. The synthetic neocortexes will consist of vast parallel um, uh, pattern recognition modules, and we will be connected to them wirelessly and become part of the cloud. Ultimately, more and more of our memories, our activities, and so forth will be displaced to these, if you will, synthetic neocortices. And he says, basically, the synthetic add-ons might be composed of trillions of pattern recognition modules. Again, possibly another way to enter the age of M with almost everyone being uploaded, as opposed to a few thousand very select M's doing that. Another thing that M's might do is aimed directly at creating artificial intelligence. We have a lot of, 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 of people who are thinking about these issues now, trying to create, if you will, artificial superintelligences. And there are a lot of possible concerns with that and so forth. But in his book, Robin basically points out that if whatever it is that's doubling in the M economy, the wealth and power, and the, I assume the computational power that's available, it would make it possible for M's objectively to create uh, a, a artificial intelligence at the human level between 7 to 20 objective months after they, the M world takes off. In other words, we could very quickly get to artificial superintelligence. Um, it would not be merely emulating human brains at that point, but they will have come up with a different kind of intelligence architecture, and an intelligence explosion could take off. This is an artist's depiction of a matryoshka brain, which is basically a set of nested Dyson spheres made of pure computronium circling a star. This is what M's might be able to cre create for us, or create for themselves. Um, then there's the idea of transcension. Uh, transcension, the hypothesis, proposes that there is somewhere out there, it's kind of like the great filter hypothesis, but that there's a universal process of evolutionary development that guides all sufficiently advanced civilizations into what is called, may be called inner space, a computationally optimal domain of increasingly dense, productive, miniaturized, efficient scales of space, time, and energy and matter, and eventually, if you will, to a black hole-like destination. The transcendent idea could be the solution to the Fermi paradox as well. That is, the emulations or the artificial superintelligences find the outside universe boring, and so instead to stay home and opt to create vast virtual worlds in which to play and exist, um, which was an idea I was once at a conference, I was talking to Marvin Minsky, the, the great AI researcher at MIT, and his basic idea is, well, I think what's going to happen is we're going to have uh, a block of uh, computronium a few meters on a side, and all 10 billion people will live in that, and it'll, call, and it'll cost a couple hundred bucks a year to supply the energy to it, and that's it. We'll just all live inside of that, and nature can go on and do whatever it wants. We'll see. In any case, what are we to make of the coming age of M? Um, it depends on whether you think of M's as our posterity or as our alien replacements. Or to paraphrase Fox News, Robin reports, you decide. In any case, buy the book. You can't have too many copies. It's fascinating. Makes a wonderful Father's Day gift. It's coming up. 
Flag day, uh, birthdays, weddings, bar mitzvahs, you can't have too many copies. Anyway, I look forward to listening to more uh, what Robin has to say uh, this morning. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for the uh, insightful comments. Uh, we're going to now take audience questions. Uh, a few things that I need to say here. Uh, first of all, please wait to be called on. Second, please wait for the microphone so that everyone in the room and everyone watching online can hear you. Uh, third, please announce your name and affiliation before you begin your question. And finally, please make sure it actually is a question and uh, not a speech or an extended set of comments. Please you know, use the rising intonation at the end and leave something in doubt that you might like to know about. And, and then one of our uh, two uh, very smart individuals up here will, will respond to you. Uh, let's see, how about here? Thank you. My name is David Rubenstein, and I am unaffiliated. Uh, I, I appreciate your uh, brilliant thought about what robots could look like, and Mr. Bailey, your questions about why that uh, vision might not take place. And my question is about the evolution of how we got here. Uh, Mr. Bailey talked about turning resources into children, into offspring, and that there are genes that want to reproduce themselves, not that they have any wants, but the ones that are best suited for reproduction in a given environment are the ones that reproduce. You've described these brains as having come from humans and being emulation, uh, but the part that I didn't see is where do they evolve to? There will be mistakes in the reproduction of the brains. There will, in theory, be evolution that these brains will change. What they're trying to accomplish will change. And where is it that you see, once we move beyond robots into some kind of intelligence that comes from the evolution of these brains, where do you see it moving from robots into some, the next stage beyond that? So um, there are several kinds of evolution that happen in worlds like ours. So we are already in a world where cultural evolution is more important than genetic evolution. So uh, when our environment changes, we change our cultures. And to the extent that we are competing with each other, our cultures compete. Uh, and so in this emulation scenario I'm describing, there's, I'm already using the idea that there'll be a lot of competition and selection in order to argue for the particular conclusions. But this isn't about genetic selection. It's about selection among which humans get copied more and which get trained more and which get marketed more. Uh, there's already a lot of cultural plasticity in terms of how they could be trained different or how they could be in different environments. And so I am already considering those kinds of evolution, the evolution of the culture that would select for, select which particular uh, humans and how they would be trained. So there's plenty of change already within that. There could, of course, eventually be even more change from the point of view of, of once they understand these minds, being able to edit them in deeper levels and, and make more changes. But I've chosen to write about the era before that happens because there's already plenty to write about. And uh, again, I'm, I'm happy if you think I've said something uh, you know, informative about something we can some say things about. I've tried to speak mainly about things I can say, and when I can't say things with much confidence, I just don't. And so that's moving beyond what I think I can say much about. 
Yes. Uh, hi. Uh, hypothetically, um, all of this is going to take place first on uh, lab animals, and so then I'm imagining that there will be um, M's of lab rats, and I just don't know enough about what you're <laughs> what what you're talking about to try to understand what that might mean. If you had any thoughts about that. So there's a lot of things that have to happen before this technology finally works, and clearly there's a lot of brain science that would have to happen, a lot of, of experimentation on both humans and other animals, and yes, probably you would have full emulations of other animals before you had a full emulation of a human. Uh, it would be harder perhaps to convince somebody you had a full emulation of an animal since it's harder to interact with an animal and, and convince somebody it's really there rather than just a simulation, whereas with a human you could probably convince them more reliably, but yes. But that doesn't really make the big change because emulations of animals just aren't very useful. We really haven't found very much use for animal brains in our economy. And so cheap animal brains, lots of them really wouldn't make that much difference. Cheap human brains, huge difference. Yes, on your first in the My name is Sarah Shotland. I teach Utopia Studies at Maryland Honors College. Uh, in Oryx and Crake, the Krakers were robotic kinds of figures or clone types of figures or whatever Atwood would choose to call them to populate a new world in replacement for human beings are supposed to be designed without religion, but in fact, they end up having religion. Could you talk about why you say M's would have religion or ritual? I find that a fascinating suggestion. Thank you. Sure. Um, so first of all, we just observe that in our society, there's a correlation between people who are more religious and people who are more productive have higher wages. So because the emulation economy is selecting among all the humans for the ones who are the most productive, they will be selecting for people who are more religious. That's, that's a weak region, reason to expect more religion, but it's there. Uh, a perhaps stronger reason is that we have a good standard theory about why religion arose out of spirituality. So our forager ancestors had a lot of spirituality, a lot of mysticism, but Religion, in the form we know it, where there is a strong moralizing God and, and certain sort of religious rituals associated with that, our standard theory about why that happened was that the farming world needed people to uh, abide by new norms that felt less natural, and that religion was a good, powerful way to get people to follow those norms. Uh, and the emulation world has that same sort of a need. Uh, it has new behaviors and new norms that would be required that may not feel entirely natural, especially to a bill, <laughs> and uh, religion could help with that. Um, it, it is one of the most powerful mechanisms humans have for molding people's sense of what's right and wrong and uh, getting them to do things uh, f out of their own volition that wouldn't otherwise feel so natural. Ern Reynolds, unaffiliated. It takes two things to win any contest or battle. First, an impregnable base coupled with freedom of movement. Now, the impregnable base is, to me, the central regulatory model, but the freedom of movement, which we libertarians are the most interested in. I could not see where freedom of movement uh, is anywhere in your slides. Can you point out any place where there is uh, that, uh, that freedom of movement? 
uh, that sent, uh, that um, ability to act spontaneously and uh, with surprise. So as a practical matter, I basically always assumed freedom of movement. That is, I, I, I use the usual economist supply and demand modeling, which assumes that there are free labor agents who can choose which jobs to take and free capital that decides where to invest and free firms which decide which products to make and all those sorts of freedoms. And that was my working analytical framework because that's what we economists always do as our first cut framework. But then I noticed that many people were asking me, yes, but is that what would actually happen or would they be slaves or what else? And then I decided my anal analysis didn't really tell me. I couldn't really say whether they would be slaves or not, which much strength, just because in the past we've had a variety of societies. Sometimes there have been a lot of restrictions on freedom of movement, and those societies haven't entirely crashed and burned really fast, at least. And so um, I couldn't say with much confidence exactly who, which rights would happen when. I, I could notice that, uh, as I said in the talk, um, you know, there's less reason for slavery here uh, because when wages are high, that's when you want to own slaves because it costs less to feed the slave than it does to pay a free worker. When wages are near subsistence level, you don't actually get that much extra from having a slave because it costs about the same either way. Uh, but I still can't prove that, in fact, they would have more freedoms. I, my main argument why there would be somewhat more freedom is just that freedom is mildly more competitive. That is, I am persuaded by many libertarian arguments that, in fact, libertarian policy would, in fact, be more efficient, more effective, that more people would get roughly what they want. Uh, and therefore, our regulation is, on the whole, on the margin, is hurting people and getting in the way. So if that's true, then, in fact, uh, an emulation, a more competitive emulation world would push, that, push away that inefficient regulation and, therefore, in that way, make people more, the emulations more free. Hi, John Errett, Connecticut Policy Institute. Assuming M immortality and the capacity to make copies of oneself and one's identity at any point during the process of evolution, assuming at a very extended lifespan for these Ms, at what point would clan boundaries start to collapse by virtue of subsequent evolutionary transitions in that process? I wish I knew. Uh, the, uh, I, I do sort of describe the concept you're talking about is subclans, that is, clans that have a sub parts of a clan that have a stronger sense of identity. Uh, when they say diverge to live in different cities, or follow different professions, even have different religions, then those different copies may well feel less affiliation. And there would be uh, the larger unit would be less a strong unit of finance and law, et cetera, and the units would become smaller ones. But it's basically about who do people trust and feel affiliated with, and we just haven't tried this out yet, so we don't know. Ken Dillon, Ciencia Press. What would war be like in a world of both M's and humans? Um, so during the Industrial Revolution, when uh, industry was replacing farming, uh, we had wars, but there really wasn't so much wars of industry versus farming. If that happened, it was pretty one-sided and, and didn't last long. Yeah. The, the big wars that lasted long had both farming and industry on each side. So uh, once the emulation economy is mature, if there was a war of the emulations against the humans, it just wouldn't last very long. It's pretty lopsided. But more likely, there would be 
other units of analysis, and then within each unit, there would be both humans and emulations. So if most emulations are within a small number of very big, dense cities, then these really are city-states, in essence, and uh, these city-states could go to war with each other. Um, it, it turns out to just be really hard to have wars within dense cities, um, so more likely they would have wars across cities. Uh, but because things are changing so fast, the time delay to even get to another city is really, really a huge penalty. Uh, the, the may, you know, but, so there's probably fewer small wars, but maybe more bigger wars. Uh, one nuke might take out an entire emulation city-state, you know, one quarter of the world economy sort of thing. Uh, that, that would be a really bad scenario. Hello, my name is Amanda Dubin. I'm unaffiliated. I have a basic question. You're talking about creating emulations that reflect the human brain. And Mr. Bailey touched on this. And one thing I find interesting that you don't talk about within the deaths of these M's is a basic human instinct, which is self-preservation. So how would that be translated to M's, or is that a component of M's because they are emulating a human brain? Thank you. So uh, humans have a lot of nature, and we also have a lot of cultural plasticity. That is, we are different in different cultures. And so, you know, big question here is which things are how plastic, including things related to survival and death. Uh, you know, even today, uh, we have a lot of strange attitudes towards death <laughs> uh, and uh, m medical behaviors. Uh, they aren't always the most effective attitudes. Uh, so uh, I, I think, if you just imagine that uh, when times are tough, they just retire or, or they run slower, then um, you would less imagine invoking a, a death terror. So for emulations, they can all basically go on forever as long as they're willing to go slower. So then the question you might ask is, I'm going fast and now something is going wrong and I might have to go slow. How terrifying is slow? Um, now, you know, they may evolve a degree of terror about that more than we have because in their society it is functional to avoid going slow. I, this slow is failure in some sense in their world. They, they want to be faster, uh, but uh, it seems less clear that there's a, just an innate human terror of being slower. We don't even have experience with being slow per se. Today when people retire, they do have elements of what emulations have. That is, there's, a, there's an active world they used to be part of, and they leave that active world, and now they're more in the margins, and they're less influential, and they less hear about new updates, and people don't visit them as much, and people don't respect them as much, et cetera. So we already have those elements of retirement, but mostly people don't express a terror of retirement, perhaps a reluctance or even a regret, but not quite a terror. So uh, I would focus here on uh, thinking about going slower and how you feel about that. And none of them really ever have to feel death uh, in the ordinary scheme of things if they don't want it. I, I don't typically uh, have a terror of, of running slowly. Uh, but when I'm around Robin Hanson, sometimes I kind of do. Uh, I, I'm going to exercise the moderator's prerogative and, and ask a question myself. 
Uh, you, uh, you describe early on in the book one of the biases that people have when they predict the future is to think in far mode. And in far mode, uh, this is a, a sort of cognitive style, you can probably explain better than I can, uh, where things tend to be perfect. They tend to be smooth, orderly, uh, very simplified, very harmonized, everything has a purpose, everything tends to be, uh, uh, you know, it, it, has, it has various predictable traits. Uh, I would like to slightly accuse you of reasoning in far mode in that you assume a world of very good human emulation. I think that the emulated world would have a lot of glitchy humans. I think that we would be good at emulating a few things out of what the human brain does and, and maybe they would be really, really, you know, functional, and then other parts of these brains would be, you know, just, they'd be lousy. They'd be, you know, we'd have a lot of Quasimodos, and we might have, in fact, thousands of them. And we would have, we would have M's that kind of look like us, but actually they're maybe more like demi-humans. Uh, and and I, I think that this is a, a more plausible scenario, in part because if we ever do get to the actual age of M as described in the book, uh, we probably have to go through that first. What would you say about that? So I'd make the analogy of alienation so far in history. So as we moved from being foragers to farmers to cities, we have often tried to bring along part of our environment that we felt comfortable with, that made us feel human, and we have brought those along imperfectly. <laughs> uh, and therefore, over time, we have had to deal with more alienation, more ways in which the world we live in doesn't feel quite natural, doesn't feel quite the way it's supposed to, but we make do. <laughs> Uh, and if something is really bothering us, then we pay more to make that more like the way things used to be. But if it bothers us less so, then we let it slide. So I'd make the similar analogy with M's. Mm. Um, when we emulate M's and we give them a virtual environment, initially, it won't be exactly right. It won't, a bunch of things will be way off. And then the question will be, okay, yeah, that's off. Do you mind? <laughs> How much is that bugging you? If it's really bugging you a lot, okay, we'll work on it. We'll make it a little, a little closer to the way things used to be. If it's not bugging you so much, we might say, just let it slide. There's other things to worry about here. And so over time, of course, some elements of the world would become more and more you know, reliably like the way we want. They would just get better at virtual reality. But other parts of their minds and their workplace, they would have more and more alienation probably. That is, even our minds, we're not used to working in large organizations. <laughs> we're struggling over the last few centuries to figure out how to deal with large organizations. It just isn't the sort of social world we used to grow up in. And those sorts of degrees of alienation would get worse. We would probably have these mind tweaks and ways that we sort of reduce parts of the mind that the emulations don't need that much, like, say, big parts of our visual or auditory uh, parts of the brain that we see and hear in high resolution. They might go, eh, we don't need such high resolution. Let's shrink it down. And again, that would now you feel, your life feels a little more alien because when you look around, it's fuzzy. <laughs> and we might ask, is it bothering you? Do you, do, you need, do you need it to look sharper? If it bothers you a lot, fine, we'll, we'll work on it. But yeah, so overall, you have to expect in the long run more alienation. More, the farther our descendants go from the environment we originally uh, evolved in, the more we will be distant from that. The more our environment will just be strange and we will just feel the sense that it isn't quite right. And yeah, that's the future. Yeah, in the back. Uh, to bring Mr. Bailey back into the conversation. Um, first of all, thank you very much. <laughs> well, no, no, I, I, uh, I think it's uh, very, very necessary. Blessedly so, though. Um, thank you very much for flashing some of the um, favorite pictures from my youth up on the screen. I wondered if at some point you're going to have um, I, uh, AI uh, up there also. Could you look about 30 minutes before the still shot we saw 
uh, with uh, Roy Batty where he goes to, um, to discuss existentialism with uh, Dr. Tyrell and, and says, uh, Tyrell says to him, um, the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long and you have burned so very, very bright, Roy, um, and contextualize that in the whole uh, AI uh, sort of awareness uh, uh, dilemma, you know, the, 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 uh, the oncoming of death, or at least uh, the shutdown of the machinery, you know, that example of HAL in 2001 and, um, and the cat that Michael Fassbender played in uh, Prometheus. And thank you. Uh, I think that uh, Roy Batty found that to be an inadequate answer. <laughs> Right, you know, uh, burning twice as bright, uh, of course everyone wants to do that, but you'd like to do it for as long as possible as opposed to make the trade-off perhaps. Maybe some MIMS would make that trade-off, and that's the kind of world that, that Robin does describe, where uh, faster MIMS, uh, in fact, will have to retire objectively sooner, uh, because they, they will have subjectively lived a much longer period of time, will have built up all these experiences and so forth, and the mental aging would have occurred faster to them. So the consequence of brighter, if I'm getting this right, the consequence of burning brighter in his M world is that, in fact, uh, you, you will retire or end yourself or be ended much sooner than you would otherwise if you were uh, in the nice slow, slow lane with uh, the, the um, epsilon Ms, we'll call them. Over here. Uh, Jeremy Neufeld, uh, my uh, question is, in, in discussing selection, you've, as the underlying ultimate factor, um, you've talked as it's, it's going to be productivity, and my question is um, whether you would expect any important correlations for selection with, uh, will, like, of willingness to be emulated with anything important besides productivity. So, um the very first emulations are, are going to be selected among people who are willing to be destructively emulated. <laughs> so the very first scans will probably be destructive. So uh, there'll probably be uh, only a small fraction of people willing to be destructively scanned in order to become an emulation at the very beginning. And then those very first emulations would be selected for people who are already at the peak of some career today. Uh, and so that's also a height. You know, so. I still think there'll be some people like that willing to do that to make trillions of dollars. Uh, but still, yes. Uh, later on, eventually, there would be probably non-destructive scanning eventually. But after that, that would be well after lots of other people have got first mover advantages. So you'd be wondering. Uh, so definitely, I think there would be a selection for, I mean, productivity includes like just willingness to move to this strange new world, willingness to adapt to it, uh, to, to set aside the way things used to be, to get used to a new world and land, to uh, maybe lose your previous friends and family contacts and make new friends in the new world, all the sort of things immigrants have done uh, through history, willingness to go to a new place and, and adapt to new circumstances. This would definitely select for that because that is part of productivity in a sense. I mean, if you aren't willing to go and you aren't willing to adapt, you're just not going to be productive. Uh, so they are elements of productivity. Well, thank you very much. My name is Ken Dante. Uh, very interested in religion, in dialogue about religion, and you guys have touched on this. Uh, Mr. Bailey mentioned two qualities that really seem very much 
at the kind of peak of religion. One was superintelligence, and I think I see people even in mysticism reaching for this point of superintelligence. And the other was transcension. But I really wanted to direct this to Mr. Hansen. Is there any way we could flesh out this religion more? What is the motivating myth? What is the motivating dream? Uh, of course, religion has always dealt with suffering and limitation, and that dream exists almost in opposition to it or as a palliative to it or hope to it. So what might the religion look like um, beyond the ritual or even with the ritual? The axial revolution is the name given to a period in history uh, roughly two and a half thousand years ago when most of the world's religions were formed, which was the period when there was this big transition from an old-style religion of the local super-powerful king god to some more philosophical set of principles that would unite somebody as a religion. And since that was sort of the, the arrival of the modern concept of religion, it's striking that pretty much all those religions are still around us, and most people who are religious today are involved with one of those original religions. And, it's, and they pretty much all survived the Industrial Revolution. So given that history, I gotta say, probably not new religions. <laughs> probably the old religions will continue to adapt as they did with the Industrial Revolution. Uh, they, still, they have a huge install base, a huge set of devotion. Uh, they, they let people show their continued devotion to existing communities. And so I would more ask, how would these these religions adapt to those new changes. What, what, there's some minimal adaptations they'd have to make. So say in Christianity, as in others, there's a key concept of sin. If I sin, that doesn't mean my brother sinned. But if I sin, um, are all my future copies sin? Probably fine. What if I make a copy and then it sins? Did I sin in making the copy? What if I kind of anticipated it might sin in this way if I made a copy? <laughs> and so they will definitely have to work out this sort of scope of sin, and they also have to work out the scope of death because many religions have death as a key concept, and they'll have to decide which of these various things that happen in this world count as death. Um, one thing I didn't mention um, because I didn't have time, but I'll say it now, this is a world of ghosts. Uh, we have a traditional concept of ghost in literature, which is a cloud of things around us that we could interact with, but we rarely do, and if we did, they aren't really up on things. They are kind of stuck on old ways. They, they aren't very profitable to interact with. They, they, they don't really have much influence on the world, except in unusual circumstances. But they're all around, and maybe you could interact with them. The Emerald really does have these things, because these are retirees. The, world, the Emerald has this vast world of retirees, especially if every little spur wants its own little uh, you know, future of being a slow retiree, then there's a vast pile of this cloud of retirees all around all the time that you could always pick one out and talk to it if you wanted. But, it wouldn't really know much, and it's kind of stuck on old ways and can't really do much, and why bother? Um, David, <clears throat> David Sobelson, Washington, D.C. I have a very simple question. Will M's want physical bodies, and if so, why? The, the typical emulation won't be particularly eager for it, I expect. Um, you know, just like we sometimes like to go back to nature, the real nature, not a simulated potted plant we keep in our living room, <laughs> emulations may want to go back to bodies sometimes just to visit that are more like the original bodies, just to feel exactly what it was like and see these deviations that Jason mentioned, just to, like, to go back to the original. But that would be more of a short-term visit. Uh, 
compared to all the flexibility and beauty, et cetera, and virtual reality, physical bodies will be kind of disappointing, just like your living room looks pretty good after a night in a tent in the forest. Um, I, I thought of a question as you were speaking. Um, to me, this sounds a lot like science fiction, even though I realize that you're publishing it as um, nonfiction. And the, the truism about science fiction is that it's a um, commentary on um, the life of the current culture or the current society. And um, I haven't really th thought through, but I think you must be making a commentary either deliberately or subliminally about the world that we live in now. And I wonder if you have some thoughts on that. My colleague Tyler Cowan wrote a review of the book wherein he basically uh, presented the book that way as an indirect way to think about our world. Um, and of course, you can see it that way. In a sense, really any summary of an entire other civilization where you try to go through everything about that civilization will make you reflect on your own because you will start to imagine, well, what would a summary of my civilization look like if you described everything? Uh, and each, in any of these ways, I'm often making a comparison with our world. And so many people have said that they find it instructive to learn things about our world <laughs> because I first say, hey, the usual case is this in our world, and so it would be this way in that, the M world. And I'm telling you many things people don't know about their own world. Um, but my goal is, at least consciously, to tell you about a future world. I, I will mention that, that um, Ron talked about how there are many futurists with many visions of the future, and I definitely would say, you know, I'm not give, trying to give you a high probability. I'd say if it's worth having 100 books on the future, it's worth having a book on each scenario that only has a 1% chance, so I, I think I could meet the 1% chance uh, <laughs> criteria. Uh, so I'm happy to accept that there are many other scenarios. On the other hand, I will say, I will claim, I've never read another scenario worked through with this much detail. So sometimes give you a little sort of a story about what the future may like, but it isn't very coherent. People haven't thought through whether it's consistent. These are often heaven and hell scenarios where they're trying to sell you on how wonderful it'll be or how terrible it'll be, terrible it'll be. And uh, honestly, I'm suspicious of these scenarios when people haven't worked them out in much detail. And I want to encourage people to actually work these scenarios out in as much detail as possible. And I'm giving an exemplar here. See how much detail I worked out here? I dare you to work out something else in that much detail. Show us, because when you look at things in detail, often there's a few uh, not less than ideal things. Eventually, you start to see some flaws in a heroic, heavenly vision when you look at some details. Uh, may I? Just a, I, I, I agree that that's what you've achieved with uh, uh, the age of him. The problem with the other scenarios is that they are trying to describe, as I would describe, think of it, as the eras that occur after the age of him. And so the tools that you're applying to human brain emulations, anthropology, sociology, psychology, and so forth, will probably not work. Or if they could work, how would they work? I haven't written those books yet, so I don't okay, know. Okay, okay. But, but you can see, but, so, but, but when you're complaining that they're not using this, this kind of well, the, the toolbox that you have, the toolbox simply may not be available to them. If, if they've gone as far as they can and have to stop, I can understand that. I just okay. doubt that they've actually gone as far as they can. Okay. Uh, yes, in the back. Jim Graber, representing only myself. Um, these M's are very much human-like. 
And AI, as we usually think of it, is very anti-human-like. Of course, there's all these movies about how you know the AI you know, is trying to destroy the humans. But why is it? Do you think that the future will have these you know human-like things? Why won't some much less human-like thing be much more likely? So the history of technology, such as the ordinary silicon-based computer, is full of uh, examples where there's a standard technology and then there are imagined alternatives, such as, say, um, arsenic-based or uh, computers or other sorts of things. And at each time, there are usually people who say, look at this alternative technology. It has these various fundamental advantages. You know, it you know, has a lower temperature or whatever, whatever it has. But off, often, even typically, these alternative technologies don't get realized. And it's not necessarily because they aren't intrinsically better. It's because it takes a lot of complementary investments to make a technology work out and then to get people to use it. So many of the technologies we have, we have because we started with them and then we made a lot of other investments so that um, other things would be compatible with them, other things would work with them. And by the time you make enormous number of investments, it then becomes very expensive to switch and it's very hard to offer alternatives to get people to switch. So this is true of an enormous uh, range of the technologies we have. This can also apply to the human brain. So the human brain is a way of organizing an, an intelligence. Uh, it has many capabilities and we have an enormous range of adaptations to it. Our society has overwhelmingly adapted to the human brain. Um, we, when we write non-human-like software, we struggle to have it find places in our world compared to finding places for humans. So this looks like humans have an opening, the human minds have an opening for if they can rapidly enough adapt to new environments and, and gain a foothold and get, get things to adapt to them, that they could last a while uh, and resist these alternative technologies, which at some abstract level might be more efficient if they were elaborated far enough, but may not get elaborated far enough because you know the first mover often has a big advantage. So uh, that's, I also just observe that, again, AI has been taking a long time. It's really hard. I used to be an AI researcher for nine years, and it's really hard. And we are a long, long way away and don't get fooled by some exciting demos. Uh, you know, it's, they're great, it's good that they're happening, it's good that there's progress, but you know, no, we're still a long way off. And so there's still a lot of room for humans to improve and uh, the human mind, like minds to find new uses before all to be replaced by other kinds of software. Um, so I understand that your argument is about what uh, the eventuality will look like rather than whether it's good or bad, but to the extent that this scenario is bad, um, do you view it as more of an inevitability or is it something that humans can proactively avoid if it is something we do want to prevent? I think that when people talk about the future, they usually go into a far mode frame of mind where they imagine everything is up for choice and it's only if, if we in the room at, at our salon discussing it all decide we want future A, well, of course, we can just make future A happen. Um, so I think you need to be, we need to be realistic about how much we can change what. So honestly, so far in history, technology has mostly been a train that no one's been driving. Uh, we have just not done very much to direct which technologies happen 
or even to prevent technologies we don't like, mostly technologies that have much of a use anywhere. If they can get anybody to use them, they just happen and then they grow if they can find a use. So, and we, we don't have very good capacities for world governance. We, we are struggling at the moment to even do a small number of things at a global scale, that there's wide agreement, uh, there's, even if perhaps incorrect, agreement that there's things should be done. So um, I would recommend you more think about smaller changes that could be feasible than just completely re-changing everything. Ask yourself a thousand years ago, if somebody had shown you a thousand years ago what the Industrial Revolution would, would have been, was going to be like, they could sort of lay out the, the argument, what could you have done a thousand years ago to change our world? It's actually a pretty hard task to think of what you would have done. Not that they couldn't have done anything, but on a huge scale, changing the entire structure of society, that would be a pretty tall task. So uh, we are about out of time now. Uh, so what I would like to do is uh, tell you all about lunch. Uh, lunch will be on the second level, so up the spiral staircase or the elevator uh, in the uh, George M. Yeager Conference Center. Uh, the restrooms are on the way into the conference center on the right-hand side, so it uh, should be pretty easy to find. Um, and I believe that's all I have in the way of announcements, so all that remains is for us to uh, thank our two speakers for today. Thank you.